Heavenly Father, we come before you now in awe of your greatness. Um, Lord, you are the creator of everyone and everything. And in your infinite power, you love us. Thank you that you saw us in our brokenness and in our sin, and that you sent your son to break into the world um, to save us. Thank you that you are the one who pursues us. And this morning, I pray that as we look into the events leading up to the birth of your son, that your Holy Spirit will just speak clearly and effectively this morning, um, and that you will just move in our hearts and uh, just move us into action for you. We love you. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. Everyone loves a story of transformation, especially when you would least expect it. Uh, we see this in fiction in the movies with someone like Captain America who starts off as this puny weakling and then transforms into a super soldier who saves the world. For those of you who like literature, we see this in a character like Frodo Baggins, who is a small hobbit from the Shire who goes on to save Middle Earth. Or for any of the history buffs out there, right, we, we'd love to cheer this on in history. Think of someone like Abraham Lincoln, who came from very humble beginnings and was born in a log cabin, didn't have much of an education, and yet he went on to become a great American president. My personal um, favorite is William Carey. If you're not familiar with William, William Carey, he was born in the 1700s in just a small rural village out in England. His father uh, was a weaver, and he went on to become a shoemaker. And then um, William, as he got older, he, he taught himself Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and he became a preacher. And so we see how he is just transformed from these humble beginnings. He's used by God. And during a time when there was not much missions at all, he felt called by God to go overseas to India to be a missionary. And he is now regarded as the father and founder of modern missions. So this morning, our central truth is that God's promises will come to pass often through the most unlikely of people in the most unlikely of places. And we see that with William Carey. And this morning, we're going to look at what many would have thought was an insignificant couple in the middle of nowhere that God chooses to use to bring about the birth of his son, who would be the savior of the world. And I know it's not December yet, um, but our family has a tradition that once you see Santa in the Thanksgiving Day Parade, we can start singing Christmas songs and we can start watching Christmas movies and it's moving into that spirit. So this morning, we do get to kick off our Advent series called Glory in the Highest, and we're going to be looking at Luke and the events that led up to the birth of Jesus. Uh, I'm a teacher, um, and during my first couple years teaching at Holy Trinity, I had the challenge and privilege of teaching Latin. So when I hear words like Advent, or we're going to look at Annunciation, I can't help but think of, you know, where they come from. So uh, the word Advent, as Taylor mentioned earlier, it comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or coming. So during this period of Advent, we're not just, you know, taking chocolates from a calendar or something. Like what we're really supposed to be doing is we look at what was the arrival of Jesus when he was born, and we also get to look forward to his second coming, which he has promised, right? And I've heard it explained that it's like we're in between two mountains, and right now we might be in the valley, but we get to look at both of them to guide us. So this morning, if you're not already there in your Bibles, I would invite you Turn with me to Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. That's where we're going to be camped out this morning. Again, we're going to be looking at the Annunciation of Gabriel to Mary. And Annunciation just means announcement. So this is when the angel Gabriel is announcing to Mary that she's going to give birth to Jesus. So let's uh, read the passage in its entirety. Let the word of God just speak for itself. And then we'll break it down verse by verse. All right, so Luke 1, 26. 
reads, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, this morning, I'm going to break it into five sections. So for those of you following along in your outline, we're going to be looking at the proclamation, the prophecy, the predicament, the promise, and the prayer. So our first point is the proclamation, which we'll see in verses 26 through 29. But before we dive into that, um, let's lay some context, since again, this is week one in our series. So earlier in Luke chapter one, we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, and Zechariah was one of the priests of God. And at the time, there was about 18,000 of them. And he was chosen to go into the temple to burn incense unto God and to pray to him. And during this time period for Israel, it was a, about a 400-year period of prophetic silence, right? This is right in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, one of uh, my favorite Christmas songs is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it says this, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appeared. So we see that the Israelites were just waiting in eager anticipation for the coming of their Messiah. And so often for us, we find ourselves in a period where we need to wait on the Lord. And it doesn't mean that God's timing is always how we want it to be, but we're going to see this morning that God's promises will come to pass and that He is faithful. Now, this period of prophetic silence all changed when the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah um, in the temple. And he told him that his wife Elizabeth, who was old in age and was barren, that she would give birth to a son and that he should call his name John and that John would prepare the way for the Messiah. Two years ago, I had the privilege of actually getting to travel to Israel right before all the COVID stuff. Um, and I was chaperoning Holy Trinity's first senior class trip. And what was incredible about that journey was we got to, you know, walk in the footsteps of Christ and just see the Bible come alive. And one of the first places we went to was Nazareth, right? Because in our passage, it says that Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. And the thing about Nazareth is it's really not all that important or, or great. Like, it's actually a tiny city. We got to see olive presses and wine presses and tombs and just all these things that pointed that it was a small, rural, podunk town, right, during the time of Christ. Um, actually, one of his disciples, Nathaniel, throws in the line, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So there was like this stigma against Nazareth. So I think it's really incredible that God chose the unlikely place of Nazareth for, to be where um, you know, Jesus grew up, where his parents were from. 
And I think that God does that um, because when he chooses the most unlikely of places, it's just going to be clear that it's his plan that will come to pass, right? He didn't even choose Jerusalem where they would have been anticipating the Messiah to be. It also says in verse 27 that Mary and Joseph were betrothed, right? Now, betrothal is uh, pretty different than uh, engagement today, right? Betrothal was a really big deal. It was a formal ceremony. And then to end a betrothal, you actually had to have a certificate of divorce. It's not like you can just give your engagement ring back and, and move on, right? And the girl would actually, um, there would be a, you know, uh, she'd be staying in the home of her father while her husband-to-be would be preparing the new house. And then it was kind of cool that the, the whole family would light candles and they'd have this processional parade where they would go to the new home and then there would be the marriage ceremony and the consummation of the marriage. But right now, we're just in the betrothal period for Mary and Joseph. We also find out in verse 27 that Joseph was of the house of David, um, and that's going to be an important point where we're going to come back to in the section on the prophecy. But now let's go ahead, let's uh, take a look at the specific proclamation of Gabriel to Mary. He starts by saying, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary has no clue what to make of this, right? It says that she was greatly troubled. She was trying to figure out um, what that meant. And, you know, just picture the fact that many historians think Mary was just a young girl, like 14 to 16 years old, and she is an angel that appears to her. Uh, the angel goes on to say that Mary has found favor with God. And a more literal translation for the word favor is grace, right? And this shows us that Mary is on the receiving end of God's grace. Grace is a free gift that we don't deserve. Um, there have been some misconceptions that Mary was sinless, but Romans 3.23 clearly says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that includes Mary. Right? The only exception to that is Jesus, who lived the sinless life because he was fully God and perfectly holy. I like the connection to the Old Testament um, where we read about Noah, and it says the same phrase. It says that Noah found favor in the eyes of God, and then it says that he was considered righteous. So the order matters, right? God initiates his grace, and then we can be found righteous. And we have that same invitation to us, that as God uh, offers us his grace through his son Jesus Christ, we can respond in faith and follow that model. Later on in this chapter, we see Mary's song of praise, which Taylor's going to preach on next week, so I'm not going to give any spoiler alerts here. Um, but we do learn that Mary is, is pretty well-versed in Old Testament scripture. The reason I bring that up is when she heard the angel say, the Lord is with you, she might have thought about that same greeting that an angel used in the Old Testament when he appeared to Gideon, right? And the angel said, the Lord is with you, O mighty warrior, um, to Gideon. And Gideon, he was the weakest of his family, of the weakest clan in Israel, and he was even like hiding out it, down in a wine press because he was afraid that the Midianites were going to come attack him. Right? And the reason I bring that up is we see a parallel here where God is choosing Mary, who is a very unlikely person, just like he chose Gideon, because God can choose whoever he wants. He can choose who we think are weak in order to bring himself glory and receive all of the credit. Right? So God works in spite of our weakness and often through our weakness. And so we need to allow him to do so. The second point, um, moving on into verses 30 through 33, is going to be about the prophecy. So it reads this, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. All right, so this is the prophecy. Um, many times when we read about the encounter of an angel, the angel usually starts by saying, do not be afraid, which probably means that like the cartoon image most of us have in our minds of an angel, like a you know, girly, wimpy angel, is probably woefully inaccurate. Um, I remember a couple years back, when at our school we were doing a Christmas play, some of the young boys got cast to be the role of angels. And a bunch of their friends were like making fun of them, saying like, oh, you're like a girly, wimpy angel. So our headmaster, like he seriously took a whole chapel period just to share all these scripture verses about how fierce angels are and how they are the warriors of God and the armies of God. So that shut down the teasing pretty quickly. But just imagine that, right? You have this imposing angel who comes to Mary and tells her this just wild proclamation. Um, Gabriel says that Mary is going to have a son and that she should call him na his name Jesus. And I love the name Jesus because it is a direct connection to the Old Testament name Joshua, which means the Lord saves, right? And that perfectly sums up the mission of Jesus, that he is God and that he has come to save his people. We see in the Old Testament how Joshua is just a glimpse or a foreshadowing of Jesus. Joshua was used by God to essentially save the people in military battles, and he was used by God to lead the people into the promised land. But with Jesus, we see that he takes that to the next level. He saves us from our sin and our brokenness, something that we could not save ourselves from on our own. And he leads us into the ultimate promised land, which is heaven. Verses 32 through 33, they're probably the two verses that stood out to me the most um, during my time studying and reflecting on this passage. And so I know that it might be easy for us to sit here and, you know, just kind of think that, okay, it's an angel appears to a young girl. It doesn't really apply to me. But I hope that we can see that through this story, we can see the overarching, of God, the overarching story of God's redeeming plan all throughout Scripture and that we can just fall in love a little bit more with Jesus this morning. Verse 32 says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Um, in the opening psalm that Grayson read this morning, it said, it gave reference to the Most High, and that is a clear reference throughout the Old Testament to God. So this verse is already telling us that Mary's son, it's, it's going to be pretty special because he is the Son of God, right? He is God. Um, and we needed this, right? We needed God to break into humanity, to break into our cycle of sin and death so that we could have a Savior. It goes on to say that God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. All right, so we see this reference to David. Um, it's important to know that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, but he was essentially his adoptive father. And when we hear, you know, that God used Mary and Joseph, that he picked them out, they might seem really, really random people that God used, but if we actually look at their lineage, um, it is remarkable why God chose them. So I want to share this with you just real briefly. Um, Joseph, his lineage is found in Matthew 1, and he was from the line of David, specifically David's son Solomon. So that sets Joseph up in the kingly line, right? So Jesus is going to inherit the kingly line through Joseph. But there is a little bit of a hiccup there um, because one of Solomon's descendants was Jeconiah. And Jeconiah was a king, but he received this curse in Jeremiah 22:30, that said that none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah, right? So well, where does that leave Jesus, right? He's of the kingly line, but none of Solomon's descendants are allowed to sit on the throne. And this is where it's really cool, because we see Mary's lineage in Luke 3. 
and Mary is also a descendant of David, but not through Solomon, who became the king, but through David's son, Nathan. So with Mary's lineage, Jesus has the bloodline to David, and he inherits the kingly line through Joseph, but he's allowed to sit on the throne through the lineage of Mary. So again, we think that Mary and Joseph are just kind of insignificant random people, but I hope that this shows you that God, he knew exactly what he was doing, right? There is no um, just chance. Like he chose them specifically so that his prophecy and the fulfillment of his word would just continue to ring true. God also made a covenant with David, right? This is known as the Davidic covenant, which we read about in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. So I'd like to share that passage with you as well. It says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who is before you. Here's the really important part. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So what we see here is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecy in that he is the Messiah, he is the king. And most importantly, Jesus came to do what David and his sons never could do. Right? Jesus came to offer salvation, and he had to get us that salvation at the cost of his own life. Um, Jesus, in his first coming, he came in the form of a lowly baby, he lived the life of a servant, and he died upon a cross. But make no mistake, his second coming it's going to be really different. He's going to come back as the king, and his kingdom will have no end. So this morning, it's important for us just to take some time to consider the first coming of Christ and how that will impact his second coming. And just, you know, think about it. Like, have we trusted in him as our Lord and Savior, as the Messiah that was promised to come? Let's get back into Luke. Uh, moving on to the third point. This is verses 34 and 35. It reads, And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here we see the predicament. And a uh, special thanks to Taylor, you know, for just lobbing me a softball, letting me preach on uh, the Immaculate Conception, uh, uh, you know. Great. <laughs> we'll do our best, though, to unpack that this morning. Um, before we get into that, though, I think it's interesting to make a contrast between Zechariah, who I mentioned earlier, and Mary, right? So Zechariah, who was a priest and had a visitation by the angel Gabriel, he did not believe that what God said would be true, and he actually gets rebuked by the angel Gabriel. He's made mute, and he's not allowed to talk until the birth of his son John. Whereas, on the other hand, we have Mary, who's just, you know, this young girl, didn't have access to the same type of education as Zechariah, and yet when she hears the proclamation of Gabriel, she trusts in God, she believes in God, she does, you know, of course ask, well, how will this be, like some natural questions since she's a virgin, she's betrothed, she's not married yet, it's the Son of God. Um, and I think that this is important for us because it just goes to show us that biblical knowledge is not a guarantee of true faith. Right? So I hope that as, as we come to church, as we're in Bible studies, as we learn more about God, it doesn't just occupy the space in our head and his head knowledge, but that it penetrates our hearts and it changes the way that we really live our lives. And we can see just a beautiful model of Mary being willing to be used by God in that. Um, it's also interesting to note, again, like Zechariah, who knew all the Old Testament, you think of like Abraham's wife, Sarah, 
who she was really old in age, and yet an angel appeared to her and told her that she would give birth to a son. Or you think about Hannah in the Old Testament, who was barren for many years and prayed to God, and then she was able to give birth to a son. And yet Zechariah does not believe um, the angel, and yet Mary does. And Mary, you know, kind of has a crazy situation, uh, being the son of God. I think it's interesting, too, that um, if you look at, like, pagan mythology, I told you I was a teacher. Back in the day, I taught sixth grade Greek mythology. And so I would have to teach about how Zeus, you know, allegedly came down to earth, had physical relations, and had half God and half uh, human babies. And that is not at all the picture that we see here in the Bible, which, by the way, that was some awkward conversations with sixth graders, but... Um, <laughs> So it's all good. It's all good, right? It, it, just pretend. This is the real deal, right? And it's beautiful to look at the language that is used. Like when it says that there was an overshadowing that, of the Holy Spirit, that actually harkens back to the Old Testament. Um, and in the Old Testament, we read about the presence of God at Mount Sinai with Moses when he comes down in this large cloud. And we also see uh, a beautiful verse. Here's, here it is, Exodus 40, 34 where it talks about the presence of God again. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So again, we, we don't understand exactly how the Holy Spirit did it, but he overshadowed um, Mary, his power, and she was able in a miraculous way to conceive Jesus. And what we see here is this picture, again, throughout Scripture, of how God desires to be present with his people. We saw that with Moses at Mount Sinai and with him, uh, his presence just filling the temple. And then we see it even more fully with Jesus being present with his people through Jesus living on earth with, with us. And then the great news for us is that we have this promise as well that when we trust in Jesus, um, we receive the Holy Spirit to be present in our everyday life. And that is, that's some great news. Um, I'd like to ask the question, why is it important that Mary was a virgin? And I think John Piper says it really well. He says the most important reason was so that the fatherhood of Jesus would be absolutely unique, right? That there would be no question that there was something different about him, uh, again, that he was God. And it also fulfills a prophetic word uh, found in Isaiah 7:14. This is what it says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, right? So we see that Jesus, our Redeemer, had to be fully God and fully man. He had to be fully man because he had to live that perfect life that we never could do, right? He had to come down to earth and to take our place on the cross. And he had to be fully God so that he could be holy. And so that when he died on the cross on our behalf, he had the power to resurrect and show that the payment was received in full by God the Father. Um, let's move on to the first, fourth point. Um, and as we you know, kind of get away from the predicament, again, just take a minute to imagine that you're Mary and you're, you're being told that you're going to conceive a child through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know about you, but you might have a lot of doubts or maybe just an angel showing up would be reason enough to believe. But what God does here in the next two verses is he also gives Mary an additional proof and a beautiful promise. So let's read verses 36 and 37. It reads, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So our fourth point is the promise. And God, through Gabriel, lets Mary know that as just an extra layer of proof that, hey, you know your cousin who she's really old and hasn't been able to have a kid? 
well, I showed up to her as well, and she's pregnant right now. You should go hang out with her and catch up a little bit and see how I am able to show up and do the miraculous. Um, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, I would ask God for like these ridiculous signs all the time. Like I remember being in school and maybe struggling on a test. And if it was multiple choice, I had this little routine where I would look up at the clock. And if the second hand was, you know, in a certain section, I know if it was A, B, C, or D, I thought God would just reveal the answer to me. <laughs> for any students out there, I am not recommending this, okay? Um, God doesn't, doesn't work that way. Or I remember, like, I loved playing basketball, and I always, like, come up with these ridiculous signs, like, God, if you do this, then that's going to mean that I will start on the basketball team for this next game. And again, as I got older, I realized God does not operate that way. But what I have learned um, is that God does show up in our lives in, in many ways. And for me personally, he would either open doors or close doors on, bi on big decisions in, in my life. And one of my favorite things that God has done is he has placed people, his people, um, in my life that would either encourage me or affirm me in if I'm doing the will of God. And I think that that is exactly what happens here with Mary and Elizabeth. Right? God is placing Elizabeth in her life as this extra resource that she can go talk to, that she can relate to, and just be encouraged that, yes, God's plan is happening. Uh, you didn't just have some weird dream of an angel. Like, this is the real deal. Verse 37, uh, it's definitely my favorite verse of this passage, and it's the title of the sermon, right? It reads, For nothing will be impossible with God. And one overarching theme of the entire Bible is that nothing is impossible with God. Like, let's just go through some of the history of Israel, right? They were slaves and in captivity in Egypt. Nothing is impossible with God. He leads them out of captivity. But then they get out of captivity and they have an enemy behind them on one side and a sea in front of them on the other side. Nothing is impossible with God. He parts the waters and lets them walk through it. But then they end up in the wilderness and they have no food and no drink. Nothing is impossible with God. He makes water come out of a rock and rains down bread from heaven, right? Later, we see that the Israelites face an, an enemy that has an impressive giant. Nothing is impossible with God. He works through the life of a young shepherd boy to defeat him. We see that the Israelites, they get exiled and Jerusalem is destroyed. Nothing is impossible with God. He brings his people back and they're able to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And then the biggest one, we see that God's people need a savior, Nothing is impossible with God. God breaks into humanity through the life of Mary and Joseph and allows them to give birth to his son so that we could be saved from our sins, right? We worship the God who conquers the impossible. And this is the good news of the gospel, that God did what was the impossible, which is he made a way for us to be in relationship with him. Um, I just, I pray that this morning that as you hear this truth, if there's anyone out there who hasn't placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at the end of the service, we're going to have a prayer team in the back. They wear green lanyards. They would love nothing more than to talk with you, to meet with you, and show you what it looks like to have this relationship with God. Um, let them be like Elizabeth was to Mary and, and offer encouragement for you. Oh, I think this is kind of interesting too, right? Uh, the angel Gabriel, he says the line, nothing is impossible with God at the very end. Like if I was the angel, I probably would have opened with that. Hey, nothing is impossible with God. Here's what's going to happen. But instead, Gabriel, he waits and he uses that as his closer. And I just want to spend a little bit more time looking through some scripture passages. This is going to be rapid fire throughout the Bible that again, just tie into the fact that God 
always shows up in the impossible. There's nothing too hard for him. So you can jot down these scripture references if you want. They should be on the screen as well. Um, The first one is, I already mentioned how Abraham and his wife Sarah, she was able to conceive. This is what it says in Genesis 18, 14. It reads, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Job says to God in Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. So we see the consistent pattern of God showing up when things look like they can't come to pass, and he comes through every single time. But with that, it doesn't mean that it's always going to make sense for us for being the right timing. Right? We look at the virgin birth, and there's still an aspect of it that us in our limited, finite, you know, human understanding, we can't fully understand it. Some of it is a mystery. And I really like this verse in 1 Timothy 3.16, which says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, right? Talking about how Jesus was born as a human. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So even though the virgin birth may seem impossible in our minds, uh, we should rest upon the fact that God has delivered on his promises all throughout Scripture, and he will continue to do so. Uh, In a little bit, we're going to sing a song that talks about the promises of God, and some of the lyrics, I think, tie in really well. So um, here they are. Hopefully uh, you'll think of this as we sing it later on. You're the God of covenant and faithful promises. Time and time again, you have proven you'll do just what you said. Your history can prove there's nothing you can't do. You're faithful and true. What a great truth that is. Uh, Let's now close out the passage, uh, our fifth point. This will be a pretty quick one. It's Mary's response in Luke 1, 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So we're uh, calling this last one um, the prayer. And I am inspired by Mary's humility, right? She has just found out that God has chosen her to be the mother of the Son of God, who would be the Messiah. And it had long been the hopes of every Jewish handmaiden that they would become the mother um, of God, of the Messiah. And it's just incredible. Like, I mean, Mary wasn't sinless, but her humility really speaks volumes here in that she was just willing to be used by the Lord. I know for me personally, like, if God ever does something great through me, like, I just always kind of let pride creep in and try and take the glory or the credit for it or draw attention to myself. And Mary does the exact opposite. She says that I am the servant of the Lord. So my prayer is that we will be able to just in humility and grace be used by God in wherever he's placing us so that we can just bring about his kingdom here on earth. Um, Mary's response, it's also remarkable because she must have known that all of this would bring about so much scorn, right? We talked earlier that uh, she was betrothed, right? So to be pregnant before marriage, like in the biblical times, she could have been stoned to death, right? That was a punishment. Or Joseph could have certainly divorced her, and that would have been a broad scorn and shame. Or even if Joseph does take her to be his wife, which, spoiler alert, he does, right? They do get married. Um, It still would have been, she's in this small town, Nazareth. Everyone knows that she's pregnant before the marriage, so they're going to be looking at her, you know, the wrong way and stuff. And, And yet Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. She chooses to trust in the sovereign plan of God 
even when it might not make sense in her own mind. And I love the similarities between her prayer here and Jesus's prayer when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? When he is about to take on immense shame and immense scorn, right? When he took on arsons on the cross, which again, he did not deserve, right? He should not have had to do that, but he did because he took our place. And what does Jesus pray in the garden? He says, not my will, but yours be done. So while none of us are going to give birth to the Son of God or die uh, on the cross to save the sins of the world, we can rest in knowing that God's promises will continue to come to pass, often in the most unlikely of people, in the most unlikely of places. Um, William Carey, who I shared about earlier, he has a great quote that I think ties in well. He said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, right? So William Carey, who came from these humble beginnings and then was transformed to be a, a great missionary, he says, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And I love this quote because it reinforces the idea that it's not our own works that are going to bring about the lasting change, right? We need to rely on God. We need to expect that the great things will come from him, but he invites us to be part of that process in telling other people the good news of him. So why is it that God chooses to use unlikely people in unlikely places? Uh, it's because there is always a message in the method. And God's method is that he uses what the world thinks of as weak in order to show his strength and his power and his might. Let's go ahead and close with some application questions. So our first one is this. Are you more focused on God's plans for your life or your own plans, right? So often during this, this season of, of leading up to Christmas, we get so busy with things that it's sometimes just easier to kind of go our own route, do our own thing. Um, but God desires for us to follow him and follow where he's leading us. Uh, and even when you are following God, like I want to remind us all, like it doesn't mean it's going to be a smooth road. If you look at Mary and you fast forward um, to when Jesus was on the cross, like she had to watch her son die on the cross. Like she had to suffer as well. But in that, she was able to behold her savior and our savior, right? The savior of the world. So even when it doesn't look like God can be working great things, he is. He is in, in every aspect of it. So I hope that we, in a similar humble spirit, will be able to just say to the Lord that we are his servants and let his will be done and not our own. The second question is this, whose strength are you leaning on? Um, are you trusting in your own abilities or are you trusting in God? Oftentimes it's really easy to just try and muscle our way through, through life and rely on our own strength, but that's either just going to lead to our own burnout or it's not going to be pleasing to God. The Bible says that God's mercies are new every single morning. Um, and so we are called to rely on him. And you might feel like you're inadequate on your own. And guess what? You are, right? Uh, you do need God. You need his Holy Spirit in your life to do a work that can only be accredited to him. The third question is this. During this season of Advent, how can you take the practical steps to be in tune with God? Right? So during this time of Advent, how can you be in tune with God? And again, it, it might just be that your schedule's too busy and you need to clear up some space so that when God speaks to you and he calls you into action, you are willing and able to say yes. Or maybe it just looks like spending some extra time with your family, going through a Christmas family devotional. Um, I hope that this morning we can just cling to the truth that God's promises will come to pass and that he invites us to be part of that process here on earth and then with them in eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you that you have extended your grace to us, um, that you saw us in our inadequacy, in our struggles, in our brokenness, and uh, you sent your son Jesus to be born in the most unlikely of places, through the most unlikely of people, and that your plan is good, that your promises will come to pass. I pray that we will um, just ponder the wonder of your gift during this time of Advent, and that you will work in us in a way that can only be attributed to you and bring glory and honor to your name. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.